Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is alchemy, psychedelics, and the Western esoteric tradition. With me is P.D. Newman. He is author of Alchemically Stoned, The Psychedelic Secret of Freemasonry. He is, incidentally, also a 32nd degree Mason, and he is also author of Angels in Vermilion, The Philosopher's Stone from D, meaning John D, the great alchemist of the Elizabethan era, from D to DMT. P.D. Newman is based in Tupelo, Mississippi, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, P.D. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a, it's a pleasure. I gather that you've operated mostly in Masonic circles, and, and your research into esoteric tradition and uh, alchemy has basically been outside of academia. Um, I've published a couple of books, but um, I try to keep them accessible to the general public while maintaining an academic standard. So uh, not necessarily academic, but I try to get as close as possible. Well, you've done an incredible job historically looking at the role of psychedelics going back to not only the era of scientific progress starting in the 16th century, but even back to ancient times. Most people, I think, studying the history of psychedelics would imagine that it began maybe in the 1940s, uh, but you take it back much earlier and, and point out that in ancient times, there was a, a deep awareness of psychoactive chemicals. I was interested in psychedelics before I got interested in uh, esoteric topics. <laughs> Uh, but once once you start exploring esoterica and particularly ancient religions, you start seeing more and more that the use of, of entheogenic compounds is not an exception or a, a strangeness. We see it over and over, and it's more that we're the strange ones. <laughs> Well, we live in an era in which uh, uh, many of these substances, such as LSD, uh, even cannabis, are regulated. They uh, are, it, it's not legal to use them, but for most of human history, those regulations didn't exist. There were taboos in place, but not the kind of regulations we see. For example, um, we don't know if it's in reference specifically to psychedelic mushrooms. But when we look at um, the laws of Manu, one of those laws was that uh, you can't touch mushrooms. So there's always been, it looks like taboos in place for some of these things, but <clears throat> the mere, the mere making of something taboo, the, uh, the root word of taboo is tapu, which means to set something apart, to make it sacred. So to even put taboos in place like that implies a sort of uh, a, a sacred view of it um, in terms of the, the people who placed that uh, limitation on it. But, but you're right. We don't see anything re even remotely similar um, in regard to drugs with what we see in the modern West. Um, this notion that uh, I think it's probably largely predicated on productivity and the notion that something that's intoxicating is going to naturally reduce your ability to be productive. Um, so we tend to really uh, highlight substances like caffeine and um, uh, nicotine even, which, which uh, in, even in magical circles is, is called the working man's um, drug. Because uh, in, <clears throat> for example, in Magical Kabbalah and the Golden Dawn, um, they placed tobacco under the rulership of Mars. So it has a very uh, martial, manly, kind of a worky aspect to it. So yeah, it's, uh, 
it's everywhere. The, the, the use of substances to propel your consciousness into these other regions, these other dimensions, whatever, whatever we'd like to call them. Well, let's start with alchemy. Uh, I not long ago did a, an interview with a Jungian therapist uh, uh, on alchemy, and his attitude was sort of that alchemy obviously is a, a, a predecessor of chemistry, and it, the alchemists were largely concerned with transmuting metals, uh, transmuting lead into gold was the major concern. But as, as I understand it from your writings, if you go back to the origins of alchemy, which I, I think you take back as far as uh, Romanized Egypt, uh, it seems to be that the alchemists then had more of a spiritual approach rather than a chemical approach. Yes, they did. Um, we see the, the confusion arises because even before alchemy as such, under the name of alchemy, arose out of Roman Egypt, there were practices that we would call alchemy going on in ancient China and ancient India as well. In China, they called it Weidan, which means laboratory alchemy versus Nadon, which is uh, internal alchemy, more akin to what we would look at as a yoga or something similar. <clears throat> and the, the, these Weidan practitioners were preoccupied with metals. They were teaching um, a cosmology similar to the way Plato taught a cosmology of many descending from from a one, from a monad. Well, this thing they use to represent this monad is something called cinnabar, a mineral that is consists of mercury and sulfur. And these two things are very common even in modern Western alchemy, mercury and sulfur, which are usually combined with salt as the third alchemical compound. But salt doesn't get introduced um, as an alchemical um, element until paracelsus, until the... Uh, we get to Western uh, European alchemy. So they're teaching this cosmology to say that we get from the one, we get two. Well, Zosimos, we don't know where he encountered this, but he must have. And he starts teaching this same system that they're talking about with cinnabar, but he calls it alchemy. And he's saying that from this alchemy, we extract mercury. And he's got a student, the student, her name is Theosabia. And he's, he's telling her that, Alchemy will help her free her soul from the fetters of matter. And he starts teaching her this stuff about cinnabar. Well, she doesn't understand. She says, I don't see what this has to do with my soul, Zosimos. And he says, well, I'll make it real clear for you. In fact, I'll draw a picture and draw you a book of pictures, which he did. This book called Mushafa Suvar. And in this text, it's mostly pictures, but there's some writing. And in that writing, he tells uh, Theosabia that when I say cinnabar, I actually mean acacia. And when I say mercury from cinnabar, I mean the stone of the wise, which we take from the acacia. And it's this stone that has the capacity to free your soul from the fetters of matter. Now, acacia, there are a few thousand species worldwide, but originally we thought only about a hundred of them, but now it looks like closer to seven or 800 different species contain concentrated amounts of the most potent entheogenic compound known to man in, in dimethyltryptamine. And some species even have 5-MeO dimethyltryptamine, which is what we find in it's what they call toad venom. We even find um, bufotenine, which was previously thought to only be in um, anadenanthera species, which are anadenanthera, just like mimosa, vichelia, all these acacia, they're all mimosoid trees. And it, they're the type that tends to have... Uh, this substance in them. The uh, anadinin there is what's used in South American, what's called a, a Yopo snuff or a penis snuff, which is a DMT snuff that the indigenous like to uh, blow up one another's nostrils with a, a long cane. And, uh, this substance, fascinatingly, the first time it was documented uh, by the West was during the, I believe, the second voyage of Christopher Columbus to South America when he documented this practice. So uh, it, it goes way back i think they, they said that the the use of yopo as a hallucinogen goes back 
something like 4,000 years in, the, in, um, in Argentina. But in, in all of these instances, the active ingredient is, is DMT, and, which is also the active ingredient in ayahuasca, which is a, a shamanistic brew from South America, which has attracted enormous attention these days in, in the media. Yeah, it's kind of taken off since um, um, the person who really brought it to our attention um, back in the 80s was uh, Luis Luna who we had the pleasure of seeing in Yorkshire. Um, but I don't think it really came to the broader Western mind until people like Terrence McKenna and especially Rick Strassman um, started writing with their books. And Strassman, he wrote a book called DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Um, and his, uh, his hypothesis was that this played some kind of a role in near-death experiences the experiences that result from taking this substance are very similar to near-death experiences when placed side by side. Um, in fact, there, we, there are currently exists no criteria to distinguish the two. If you look at them and nobody tells you which is which, oftentimes you'll, you cannot tell them apart. And fascinatingly, uh, many people aren't aware of this, but Strassman's research was funded by the Scottish Rite, um, by uh, the Northern Masonic jurisdiction of Scottish Rite, what's called um, the, the Scottish Rite Schizophrenia um, Research Foundation, I believe it's called. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, this, uh, I, I just think that's fascinating that this organization that um, – that still is possessed of this alchemical knowledge on, about acacia and including the means to produce al the stone from it, the alchemical technique. All of this is preserved in an organization which uh, appear, appears to not even remember the meaning of many of these symbols. And, but here they are. Since you mentioned Rick Strassman, I'm going to link uh, in the upper right-hand corner of your screen, our viewers, those who aren't using iPhones, will be able to link to two of our previous interviews with Rick Strassman. It's interesting that his significant research with DMT took place right here in Albuquerque at the Uni University of New Mexico. That's right. What an what a, uh, honor. I didn't realize you were in Albuquerque. Yeah. So uh, I, I've never taken DMT. I have taken ayahuasca. I, uh, I had a beautiful experience with it one time over 20 years ago. But going back now to the ancient alchemist, Zosimos, who wrote during the Roman period in, in Egypt, which was a very fertile time. It was great wisdom being collected in the library of Alexandria, for example, as I recall in, in that period. And many things have been lost to us culturally, but I'm under the impression that in that era in particular, alchemy was sort of conjoined with what we could call the hermetic tradition. In a way, it was. The hermetists, we, we see... The stuff coming out of the hermetic circles that um, is very similar to both alchemy and what we would call theurgy. Theurgy is a, a ritual practice that arose around the second century, um, but was very popular among a group of philosophers called the Neoplatonists, which were third wave Platonists after Plato. Um, the founder of Neoplatonists was a man. Neoplatonism was a man named Plotinus, who was also from Roman Egypt. So you're, you're right. It was a hotbed of intellectual activity and syncretism like we have probably never seen the likes of. So one thing that the theurgists were doing is what Zosimos did professionally, which is called a galma animation or statue animation. Zosimos was a statue um, maker. He, he uh, uh, sculpted statues, but they weren't any kind of statues. They were these animated statues that were possessed of anima, of soul. They, they weren't mechanical contrivances. They were um, statues, but they were possessed of soul, which was what Carl Jung uses, uh, anima, if you're familiar, you, if you're familiar with Jungian terms. Uh, that's, that's what we mean by animated statue. And the way they would do this was, let's say I wanted to make 
a statue of the sun god, and I wanted it to be to contain the actual essence of that god, so that he would be present in that statue when I made offerings to it. Well, they would first construct the statue using things from all these different domains of nature that correspond to the sun. So from the domains of metals, they would get gold. From the domain of plants, they might get heliotrope or acacia trees. And uh, from the domain of animals, they might get something from a lion or a rooster. All of these things that they believe literally are the god at various levels. So they're trying to capture something of what we would call a platonic form through combining things. The alchemists, they're trying to capture something of this platonic form, something of an essence, but through removing everything from one thing except that essence. And that's what we see with the acacia. They're taking the acacia and they're stripping everything from it except the DMT. And this is the language we see <clears throat> used to this day in, uh, in the Rosicrucian order, um, the practicus grade, which is about uh, teaching you practical alchemy. The same language shows up there, but it's the stripling, stripping and leveling of the essence. So to leave nothing behind but that. And we see these parallels with acacia um, in Egyptian religion and Egyptian art. It's, it's not that Zosimos was pulling this out of nowhere and inventing a tradition. Acacia was long for a long time was very sacred in Egypt. And we see it in, um, uh, in hieroglyphs and Egyptian art that, that survives. Um, but it's, it's especially in Egyptian religion because Osiris was trapped in one of these acacia trees and chopped up into little pieces and thrown into the Nile. These pieces were eventually recovered and he was reassembled and brought back to life. But ev everything was found except for his phallus, which was said to be eaten by a, a medjed fish, this fish in the Nile. So everything has been pulled out except for the essence of Osiris, his generative power, which remains in the fluid, in the water. And these are the kinds of... Um, allegories that alchemists use to teach how to do this. They, they capture it under the processes of mythology. Um, this is especially prevalent in a man named Michael Meyer, who wrote an alchemical text called Atalanta Fugens. And he was a, um, what they call a Rosicrucian apologist but he specifically talks about the same thing, the capturing Osiris in a, in a coffin and chopping it up into little pieces. But again, it's to teach you how to do alchemy, the steps of alchemy. So it's, it's pretty brilliant. Uh, and it appears to go back, you know, the first time we can point a finger and say, this is what they're doing is around 300 years after Christ. But Zosimos purports to be participating in an ancient tradition himself. So we really can't say how far it goes back. But, but the basic idea, as I gather from what you're saying, is that the legendary philosopher's stone of the alchemist, the stone that enables the transformation of lead into gold, is actually a derivative of the acacia tree, which is pretty much pure DMT, uh, one of the most powerful, maybe the most powerful psychedelic that we know. That's right. And of course, uh, this metaphor of transmuting base metals into gold, this is what we primarily think of alchemy as, that if we can get our hands on the prima materia, you know, which is the central mystery of alchemy, what is the prima materia? Zosimo says it's acacia, but, but let's pretend we don't know that. <clears throat> if we can get our hands on this prima materia through the techniques of alchemy, we can turn this, this, we can extract from this prima materia or turn this prima materia into something called the lapis philosophorum or the stone of the philosophers, the stone of the wise. And through this, you can then transmute base metals like lead or tin into precious metals like silver or gold. But this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor for a substance that has the capacity to transmute baseline consciousness into illumination or transcendence, into enlightenment. Hence the language of going from base something to a bright something, to something shining and illuminated. And that's really what they're talking about. Even if they're not talking about consciousness, 
you know, because we didn't really have a notion of consciousness back then. Zosimus is still talking about turning people into gold. He has, he has these visions he recounts, which probably aren't visions or probably they're probably allegories like we're talking about now. And that's how he taught alchemy. And it's how alchemy is still taught. It's how masonry is done. It's through allegory. It's, um, if you're familiar with Milton Erickson, Ericksonian, uh, hypnosis, um, his form of therapy was all metaphor based. He, he would do his work with you simply by communicating to you in the metaphors you were already using. And these organizations and alchemy, these traditions, they do that. They have this kind of twilight language that, um, can mean one thing in one context and another thing in another context. In fact, there are some texts where, where the, 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 the prima materia, the mode of preparation, the mode of application, and the result of that application are all discussed in the same language. You just have to be able to figure out which one they're talking about at which time. But they can use the same words to talk about at least those four different uh, um, domains, motifs. DMT is found naturally in many, many different plants and, and animals, including in humans. And I recently learned of a study suggesting that in the nervous system, DMT in the brain, DMT is as common as serotonin or dopamine, the major neural transmitters. So that being the case, why is it so important that we obtain DMT from an external source in order to have the psychedelic experience? That's a good question, Jeff. I think, um, I think the, the, the easiest answer is we simply don't know where in the body it's released, under what circumstances. We don't know how to get our bodies to release it. Um, there's speculation that practices like yoga and ceremonial magic might affect this somehow. For example, we know that if you put your body in a horizontal state, the body knows this is sleeping time. This is what I do when I sleep and it starts to produce melatonin. You turn the light, make the lights low, it'll produce even more melatonin. But we know that certain postures can elicit certain reactions in our body. Certain substances can be uh, secreted. And I, th I think it's possible that yogic positions might tell our bodies to, to secrete other chemicals, other compounds. Um, I don't think that's out of the ordinary, uh, a, a, a crazy thing to suggest, but we don't know which ones do it. We, we really need more, uh, more eyes on this problem. And that's, it's really a big, a big, uh, issue that this, uh, this DMT, this domain of research is, is struggling with is not having enough eyes on the problem that know what they're looking at. And a good example is this appearance of, of DMT in um, an 18th century Freemasonry and in um, Roman Egypt. I mean, that's been sitting there since it was written, but the, but nobody with the right pair of eyes has looked at it. And, and we could have solved this problem, you know, hundreds of years ago, if we had enough of the right Pete, right pairs of eyes taking this seriously, but we don't. And that's why it's so important to, that we have people like um, Anton uh, and uh, the Turingham Initiative and people who are actually, uh, regardless of the mainstream approach to this problem, are prepared to ask these questions. I should probably say for the benefit of our viewers, since you've referred to it, uh, I met you in Broughton Hall in the Yorkshire country of England just a few weeks ago at a, a seminar sponsored by an organization called the Tearingham Initiative, founded by uh, a wonderful gentleman named Anton Bilton, who is also funding research uh, on DMT at Imperial College in London. He's doing the Lord's work. <laughs> well, it seems as if this tradition of obtaining DMT through the acacia plant resurfaced, as you point out, in 18th century Freemasonry in Europe. But uh, I presume that the, the tradition must have been kept alive through all of those centuries and is probably related to the esoteric tradition and hermeticism, the Rosicrucians and, and, and so on. But let's 
for the benefit of our viewers, let's talk about the role of Freemasonry in the Western esoteric tradition. Well, Freemasonry begins in uh, the first time we see um, literature coming from the Masonic Guild is around the 15th century. Um, We don't really get stuff we can identify and really understand well until about the uh, 15th century, 16th century. But it began as a building guild, operative Masons who were building homes, cathedrals, things like this. Uh, Well, at this time, the only people who were allowed to meet in private were the king and the church. Uh, No one else could meet in private for fear of uh, conspiracy. Well, the king, King James, became a Freemason and granted Freemasons the right to meet in secret because they were having issues of what in masonry they call cowans and eavesdroppers. These persons who purport to be a Mason, even though they're not. So uh, allegedly, apparently, people were coming forward and saying, well, I can build this church for you for a cheaper price because I'm a master Mason. And then these churches would collapse on these people because they these they weren't really being built according to the Masonic standard. So they were granted the right to meet in, in private. What this resulted in was an environment that was conducive to the discussion of ideas that were maybe contrary to the the what was accepted um, to be discussed in public. And it's right about this time that we start seeing people admitted to the fraternity who have no connection with building whatsoever. They, they tend to be um, alchemists, philosopher types, antiquaries, intellectuals that start being admitted. And a good example is uh, Robert Murray. He was a, a, an alchemist and he was an early Freemason. Um, Elias Ashmole. Elias Ashmole was a, an antiquary from Litchfield. Um, he created the first uh, the first public museum. Um, brilliant man. Well, he was also one of the early Freemasons, and he was a practicing alchemist. And it's through Ashmole that DMT finds its way into the Masonic fraternity. Most people aren't aware that the Masonic fraternity in the 18th century, they were using psychedelics, namely DMT from psychoactive species of acacia, in an initiatory context to give someone a visionary experience. Um, and in my opinion, to give them a flash of gnosis so that from then on they can act with the knowledge that what I'm doing, the rituals I'm doing have an effect in a domain that is normally unseen. So they let them see this domain during their initiation and it allows them to work on Gnosis instead of on faith alone. I think that had a lot to do with it, but it's from Elias Ashmole who um, he was the um, archivist for a magician named John D. John D. was the uh, advisor. He was um, and the astrologer for Queen Elizabeth the first, and he was obsessed with this idea of talking to angels. And the reason he wanted to talk to angels was because he wanted to spy on other countries. He believed that if he could get in touch with the angel that ruled Germany, that he could spy on Germany and probably influence Germany. So he starts trying to talk to angels with a crystal ball, but he can't do it. He has very little success. And he even gets the queen to send him scryers, men who purport to be able to do this um, professionally, but he's not, happy with any of them. And at some point, this man named Edward Kelly comes into his life and says, Hey, I can do this for you. And immediately starts giving him these uh, recounting these visions of angels that are telling him things about angelic alphabets and these rituals to do, to get in touch with archangels and how to talk to, to God and open the heavens and all these amazing things. And this goes on for seven years and they produce all of these documents about this stuff, about these angels telling them how to do this. And then finally, um, Kelly admits to Dee, you know, that I really came to you because I have this manuscript called the book of Dunstan that I stole from the grave of St. Dunstan at Glastonbury ruins. And it, and it had this red powder with it. 
And he said, and, and I, and I saw this angel and an angel told me to bring it to you, that you would translate it. And that this powder was the philosopher's stone and that this book would tell us how to make more of it. Well, before they can do this, they part ways, uh, because of an invocation that one of the angels during one of these invocations tells them they have to swap wives that D has to share his new 15 year old wife with Kelly and vice versa. And this results in Kelly's new wife getting pregnant, which is far too much for D they part company at this point. You mean D's new wife got pregnant. D's new wife got pregnant by Kelly. That's right. Yeah. Um, So uh, they part ways. um, And eventually Ashmole inherits D's papers and he tries to put this to use because he's fascinated by this stuff. He's an alchemist and he's into magic. So he tries to work this system, but he, the results he gets are minuscule. He's not impressed at all. And he realizes that it's probably this red powder. And that's probably why he was so keen on getting, making more of it. If this red powder is how he was seeing these angels and talking to these angels, then it would make sense that Kelly all of a sudden would say, okay, I'll tell you what's really going on. I need this powder. So he goes to Robert Boyle, um, the the first chemist, one of the founders of the Royal Society, and tells him about it. He says that there's this powder, that if we can get our hands on it, it'll let us talk to angels. And that seems like it would be interesting for science, right? And he says, well, as a matter of fact, I'm already researching this red powder, that was in the possession of an alchemist named Wenzel Saylor. And this other man had named uh, George Ash in a letter. He wrote Boyle saying, well, this powder you got from uh, that comes from Wenzel Saylor, it doesn't actually didn't start with Saylor. Saylor got it in Prague from Edward Kelly. Well, that's again, who was working with D that had that powder and wanted more of it. Boyle immediately says, well, it's got to be a drug. If it's a, if it's a corporal substance, it allows you to see angels that aren't visible normally. And it allows you to talk to angels. It has to be some sort of a sort of a physical substance, which is probably a drug. And at this point he releases what's called Boyle's to do list. You can find this on display at the Royal society. It's been on display for about the past 12 years. Um, and what it is is a list of items Boyle wants to acquire for the society to study. And it's all about um, drugs. Most of it is drugs, asking if he wants drugs that cause um, visions, dreams, epileptic fits, superhuman strength. He wants drugs that cause flight, like actual flight. And then he says he wants the uh, elect the Egyptian electuaries, which um, cannabis historian Chris Bennett, he believes he's talking about hashish electuaries like Dawa Mesk and Majum. And I think he's spot on there. And the next thing Boyle says is, and I want the fungus mentioned by the French author, the fungus. So he's asking about what appears to be a psychedelic mushroom in the Royal society. And the, again, Chris Bennett, he suggests that this French author is probably the alchemist Rabelais who discusses, um, agaric, this, what he calls the good agaric mushroom. He discusses it alongside something he's calling manna and what appears to be a very psychoactive psychedelic kind of a context. So I think Chris is right. The fungus, was probably fly Garrick, the Egyptian electuaries, probably hashish electuaries. And so at this time, everybody in the Royal Society scrambles trying to find drugs to solve this problem. Um, one of the people who came forward was uh, um, Hook, uh, Robert Hook, who was uh, the curator of experiments in the Royal Society. He gave two lectures on the uh, psychoactive and physiological effects of hashish, um, actually describing it so well that he, he describes what appears to be the first case of the munchies from smoking too much of this stuff. And he falls asleep and he says, and I woke up exceedingly hungry, you know, so he, he it sounds like he was using it, not just talking about it. Um, and another, the way it got into Freemasonry is via one of these members named John Theophilus de Sagulier. He was a, a, a preacher and, and he was an alchemist. 
And he was the research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society, who we learned was an alchemist in 2016 when in a private cache of papers was found his, uh, his description of the stone, his instructions on how to prepare the philosopher's stone, which I think he took from George Starkey. But this man, Desagulier, it looks like instead of hashish, he was looking at acacia. And like I said before about uh, uh, Christopher Columbus reporting about encountering what he described as acacia. It's not acacia. It's anadonanthera, but it was described by um, Avon Humboldt, for example. He called it acacia neopo. So they they were thinking this was an acacia. And I think this is where Desagulier got it when he put it in masonry. Now, you just said Christopher Columbus? That's right. During his second voyage to South America, he documents the first use of DMT in the form of Yopo snuff. And the tree that this comes from, it's not an acacia, but they thought it was. They thought it was acacia neopo. That's mm-hmm. what they called it. Well, it's from this report um, that I believe Desagulier first encountered acacia and why he put it in masonry. But he could have gotten it any number of other ways anyway. But we know that the, the Royal Society were preoccupied with cartography. They wanted good maps of the world. Um, so one of the things they had were Columbus's uh, reports. And I suspect that's possibly where he got it. But it's at that point that he becomes... He gets elected the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London. Now, there are several exposés of the rituals of Freemasonry that exist before he became Grand Master. Acacia is in none of them. In every single one of them, the only plant mentioned is cassia. And cassia is a, a cinnamon-like plant from, I believe, from southern China. It was used in um, Egyptian um, mummification techniques. It's used in the temple oil in Exodus. But uh, it's not psychoactive outside of it has a little bit of eugenol and kumarin in it, which are a stimulant and a sedative. But you'd have to eat a lot of cassia to get anything from those. Well, by the time he leaves his stint as Grand Master, every lodge in Europe stopped talking about Cassia and changed to Acacia. Every expose after his stint as Grand Master from 1723 on, every single one says Acacia. Before I knew he was Grand Master, I, I was thinking, who could have made a change like that? Who could have been powerful enough to make a change like that that could affect all of European masonry? Well, the Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London, that's who. So he puts it into the Masonic ritual, specifically in the Master Mason degree, where the candidate is made to represent this Osiris-like figure called Hiram Abiff, and they're ceremonially killed, ritually murdered. And at the head of their grave is placed a sprig of acacia. And in the ritual, in one form of the ritual, they they actually pick up this sprig and he says, whoa, it, it has no roots. This must signify something. So they even highlight the fact that its roots are missing in the ritual. Where'd they go? You know? I just want to be clear, though, when you mention the term ritually murdered, uh, I don't think uh, that uh, in case any member of our audience is confused, the uh, Masons did not practice ritual murder in the gruesome sense of that term. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm sorry. I should clarify. The candidate who's being initiated is symbolically murdered in a ritual, in a ceremonial setting, and then raised from dead. So they're made to represent the God in the same way that in the ancient mystery cults, the individual candidate was oftentimes made to represent the God who goes through um, trials, like being murdered, being raised, having to go through the underworld. And that's what the Masonic rituals ultimately are, especially after De Sagulier. But in the ritual, it says nothing about drinking the acacia. It's just a symbol. It's just in there. So this would all look like conjecture if it wasn't for a man named Alessandro di Cagliostro, who pops up about about 20 years later and creates in the same city in London, what he calls the Egyptian rite of Freemasonry. 
And this is where we get for the first time somebody spelling it out clearly that the acacia is the primal matter. It's in this liqueur that you're about to drink. When you drink it, he says it's going to raise your consciousness so that you'll be able to understand what I'm about to say to you. He says, raise your spirits, excuse me, but raise your spirits so that you can understand the lecture I'm about to give you. So the implication is that raising your spirit seems to me there's consciousness alteration. This is the 18th century. So you got to think about the language they have access to raise your spirits in order to understand. And so to me, he's saying this is going to expand your consciousness. And immediately after this, we, that's what we see. They're taken into this little room where they have a series of visions of angels and these angels tell them things and they come out and they repeat to the to Cagliostro or whoever is the worshipful master at that time, the man in charge of the lodge of that ritual, um, what they were told. And this is, this is how their initiation went. And he even says to them, the, the acacia, which you were shown in the degree of master Mason and ordinary masonry is nothing but this primal matter that you're about to drink. And he says that this primal matter was given to man in the garden. He's saying it's the tree of life. He said, God gave it to him to be immortal, but man abused it and lost it. But then he says, but it has always existed in the hands of the elect of God, meaning his people, the alchemists, his order, um, the lineage Zosimos basically presented to us. So, so that's, that's how it got into Freemasonry and basically what it turned into. Now, after that, it found its way out of Freemasonry and into other organizations like the Theosophical Society um, and uh, well, what's called the Falconelli Affair in France. But um, but that's, a, that's about the time we stop seeing it used this way in Masonry, and it goes back to just being what looks like a symbol. Well, let's talk a, a little bit more about Cagliostro. To my understanding, he's, he's revered as a mystical master and at the same time criticized as a charlatan and uh, as a, a man of intrigue. Uh, what can you tell us about him personally? Cagliostro was probably a lot like Aleister Crowley. And I say that mainly because he, some revere him as a mystical master. He's the prophet of Thelema. He brought the, what they call the book of the law. And he's also a scoundrel and largely thought to be a charlatan. And interestingly, he claimed two of his previous incarnations were Edward Kelly and Cagliostro, which may be claiming a lineage. Uh, the way Crowley is, you can never tell. But I think that's a good idea of what he would have been perceived like at the time. Um, probably powerful, brilliant, but uh, there was a story that was going around about him that he had taken this man off into the woods, telling him that he knew where treasure was or something and, and beat the man up and took everything he had. And uh, So this was the story everybody had about Cagliostro. They thought he was this terrible person. But if you read in Pip Falk's book, uh, Pip Falk's, uh, Philippa Falk's is what she published it under. Um, she wrote with Robert L.D. Cooper, um, who I believe was the translator of the Cagliostro right in that book. But if you read in there, she does an amazing job of showing just everywhere that he popped up, everywhere that he's referenced and what he did. And it's not until after he's convicted of heresy and dies, you know, the Inquisition, the Inquisition convicts him. It's not until after that, that we start getting tales of him being a scoundrel. Prior to that, he's, the stories are all about him healing people and about him initiating people and enlightening people. And um, it's he's almost like a Johnny Appleseed of esoteric wisdom, just traveling around the country and meeting people, learning what they these masters from Egypt have and then giving them wisdom that he's gotten from Italy or somewhere that he's been. You know, so the picture you get from prior to his arrest is that he was the way we might think of St. Germain, uh, just a very saintly, uh, holy figure. But after his arrest, um, he was completely uh, ruined. His entire image was ruined. In fact, 
I mean, like you say, it still hasn't recovered because that's that's the primary image we get when we research uh, Cagliostro. But as you say, he founded uh, what was known as the Egyptian Rites of of Freemasonry. Uh, what became of those rites after uh, his death? He kind of embarrassed himself a little bit. He might not have seen it that way, but there was a big meeting of Freemasons in France that had all of the biggest mystics who were alive at the time. Um, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, who was the father of Martinism, was there. Atiyah, the father of tarot, of using tarot as a divination device. He was there. Um, and Cagliostro was there. And it was at this meeting that Cagliostro, he stands up and he tells everyone um, that they need to burn their minutes and stop using this old system of masonry that his is the new paradigm and they should all become lodges of the Egyptian right. And it's funny because if you look, one of the poems included by Ashmole in his book of alchemical poems that was by Edward Kelly called Edward Kelly's work. He actually says in there, go burn your books and come learn from me. You know, so they're both saying the same thing, burn your books and come learn from me. And this made everyone absolutely livid. Um, and it probably started the domino effect of his downfall. It was probably that meeting. Um, but, but, uh, as far as where it went after he was killed, he, he didn't set it up to where there would be elected, elected successors. He was always the grand coft, meaning he was basically the king of Egyptian masonry. So when he was gone, I don't, I don't think anybody really thought they could fill those shoes. And even if they had tried, they were probably looking at what happened with the Inquisition and thinking, no, I'm going to leave that alone. Well, I presume that the use of uh, a, a DMT derived from acacia pro must have continued in some of the smaller uh, esoteric organizations. I think it did. Yeah. Um, we'll see in, in Cagliostro's possession when he was arrested was an alchemical manuscript called Lettre Saint Trinosophie. And in it is the alchemical processes that he describes in the, in his Masonic ritual. It's the same thing with this, with the acacia. Um, and he's showing these symbolic images of how it's prepared, uh, that leads to a, um, what looks to me like a shamanic, dismemberment experience where their hair, teeth, and nails blacken, fall off, and grow back. Um, <clears throat> very uh, uh, reminiscent of particularly Siberian shamanic motifs. Um, but this book went on to influence the formation of what's called a fringe Masonic order, which is they're Masonic, but they're not necessarily accepted by the Grand Lodge that rules that area. And this was an order founded by a man named J.M. Ragon. Um, I think it's Jean-Baptiste Jean Ragon. And the order was called uh, uh, Order of, I think it's the Order of Trinosophists, Society of Trinosophists, something like that. And in it, the rituals, he describes something very similar. This, um, this alchemical interpretation of Masonic rituals that results in the, in an alchemical stone. So it looks like it continues there. And one of the orders that were very influenced by Ragans was the Theosophical Society. You, Blavatsky talks at length in both Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine about Ragan's Masonic affiliations and interpretations, particularly about what it means when Hiram is murdered, symbolically murdered in that ritual, which she sees as a, 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 a sun god, a, a death of a sun god, um, very similar to... Fraser's idea of the dying and rising sun god is what she sees there, and I don't think she's wrong. Even though Fraser Fraser was kind of general in his observations, but when the Theosophical Society first formed, the the meeting, the first meeting they had in New York, it was there were just several persons present. One of the people present was a woman named Emma Hardinge Britton or Harding Britton. It's got an e at the end of the Harding, so I don't really know how to pronounce it. 
Um, she had written this book called Art Magic, I believe in 1856. And in it is the first place we get someone talking about psychedelic mushrooms. It's not been recognized as such because she's talking about magic and occultism. And that's not the types of books that these medical folks are looking in. But she's talking about the trance, um, states of trance and that through trance states, you can communicate with celestial hierarchies. And she's saying that the best means of inducing the trance state are hashish, opium. She says, napellus. Uh, what else does she say? She says a few other nitrous oxide. And then she says, and the acrid distillations of two or three fungi. And at this time, Mordecai Cook had published, I believe it had been published by this time, his book, Seven Sisters of Sleep, which describes the seven favorite narcotics of the Victorian era. One of them in there is Amanita muscaria mushrooms. So that means they knew at that time Amanita muscaria mushrooms were hallucinogenic. But she says two or three species. So she's indicating something more and Possibly Semilanciata, uh, the the witch's cap, the liberty cap mushrooms that grow up there. We don't know which, but so she was present at this organization and this art magic book in Henry Steele Alcott, who was the co-founder of the Theosophical Society and his diary leaves book. It's published. Um, he says that her book, Art Magic, was to be the textbook for the Theosophical Society. And then he says that we have this man, George Felt, who was, in, who was elected vice president. George Felt, he was working with what he called Egyptian Zodiacs. I'm guessing it was the Zodiac on the temple at uh, Dendera on the ceiling there. But he said he was working with these Zodiacs. He's a chemist. And he said he noticed that his cat and dog were acting strangely as though they were seeing something he wasn't seeing. So he decided to burn an unnamed substance in order to try and see if it would make him be able to see it. And he did. Well, he brings this substance to the first meeting of the Theosophical Society. And this is the demonstration. Blavatsky says Felt is going to put on a demonstration and show all of us what the elementals look like. And so he proceeds to burn this substance on the charcoal and everybody, it erupts in chaos. They, the way Alcott describes it in his diaries, he said there were demons everywhere that looked like half animal, half man. He said they looked like the beasts depicted in Francis Barrett's The Magus, which if you've seen those pictures, they're very similar to the way goetic demons look in the, the lesser key of Solomon, uh, just kind of grotesque. And they might have the body of a unicorn and the head of a lion with man, man arms, wild looking things. But that's what he says they saw in that room when he burned this substance. And then after that, he disappeared felt was never seen again. And at this point, the Theosophical Society decided, we, well, he's not here. We can't do magic anymore. He had the substance, so we have to just quit. Well, this is when they formed what John Patrick Davini calls the Second Theosophical Society. And this is when Blavatsky said, no, we'll still do it, but no more magic no more practical anything. From now on, it's theoretical, it's speculative, but we're not going to be invoking anything. And this eventually you know, gets out of her hands too because people start joining another organization that says, well, we only do practical stuff. And it results in her creating this kind of inner order, but which we don't know anything about what they did because all the persons who were involved, none of them left us any writings about it. But she, we know that she did form some kind of an inner order with, a, with a, an open ceiling. There had to be a window in the ceiling of this room. So it, I assume it had something to do with, with observances of this astrological kind. Well, I guess the uh, next major character in the story to whom you've already alluded would be Alistair Crowley. Mm-hmm. We don't have any evidence of him having his hands on DMT. Now, 
it does look like he may have known about Amanita muscari mushrooms and not written about it directly. Um, and I say this because he painted a picture called May Morn one time. That's a picture of a woman, a witch hanging from a tree and a centaur peeking out from behind a tree. And right about where the centaur's phallus would be is an Amanita muscaria mushroom. Now, I didn't think anything about that when I first saw it because he never, t- I've read every book Crowley ever wrote. He, I was really into him in my late teens and early twenties and he never mentions it. Well, it turns out that three of his Gnostic saints in the OTO that he makes saints of his Gnostic order, Gnostic church, three of them make references to Amanita muscaria mushrooms. One of them was uh, Sir Francis Burton who talks about, um, what he calls whiskey root, but he says it's a cactus that the native Americans eat, but it gets you drunk. Um, and, he, and then he says, but it's like the mushroom, the Siberians eat. So he, he's mentioning, he knows about it. He says, it's like this cactus. So Crowley had ample reason to have known about it, but he never talked about it. Well, fast forward to uh, the 1960s, um, there's a man named Mike Crowley. He's a Kaju Lay Lama from Wales, but he currently lives in California. He wrote a book called Secret Drugs of Buddhism. Well, one of his uh, friends was one of Crowley's last um, students. Now, Mike Crowley is not any kin to Aleister Crowley, by the way. Get that, get that out of the way. But, uh, but he told Mike that um, – that he liked to eat Amanita muscaria mushrooms and joked about how he was always trying to get Mick Jagger and Marianne faithful to eat these mushrooms with him, but they wouldn't. And I thought, well, that's interesting. He was Crowley's last student. There's another connection. Well, there is a uh, podcast interview with the son of Crowley's what's called his magical son. This man named called himself Frater Ahad is what he wrote under, but his name is Charles Stansfeld Jones. Well, Jones, I don't think he had any children of his own, but he and his wife adopted several children. And one of those kids that he adopted, I think his name was Anthony Stansfeld Jones, Tony. Um, there's an interview with him. Um, I can't remember the website, but if you search Anthony Sansfeld Jones interview, you'll find it. Um, and in it, the interviewer asks him, so what was it like, you know, being the son of Frater Ahad? How, how did he spend his days? And, and his answer was, well, I didn't really get to see much of him because if he wasn't upstairs meditating in his room, he was out back looking for poisonous mushrooms. And the guy was like, what do you mean poisonous mushrooms? And he says, well, the story he told me when I was a kid was that the Japanese were flying over Canada, which is where he was living, and dropping poisonous mushroom spores to grow all over the place so that people would eat them and die. Now, either he was extremely extremely paranoid man and really believe this or it's just it when this what it sounds like to me just the kind of thing you'd tell a child in case they did see you picking these mushrooms you don't want your child eating the amanita mushrooms but you're probably out there gathering them i, I mean that's my speculation but uh but so may morn you know the three gnostic saints uh, crowley's last student and and Frater Akkad, all of these mushroom references, it seems it seems pretty probable that Crowley knew about it. Gerald York was the name of Mike Crowley's friend who enjoyed taking Amanita muscari mushrooms. Mm-hmm. He was one of Crowley's last students. Mm-hmm. Well, to wrap things up, Danny, I know that you lecture a lot to Masonic organizations these days. You're, you yourself are a 32nd degree Mason, a master Mason. Uh, I'm under the impression that these days uh, the Masonic organizations are almost totally divorced from their history of uh, psychedelic use. That's right. Yeah, there. Um, there's no evidence of any official Masonic um, use going on. And um, outside of, we have, there's an organization called the Shriners that's uh, quasi-Masonic. You have to be a master Mason to join. And it was founded by a group of men. Um, one of them involved was Al Rawson, who uh, 
He was a hashish enthusiast, and he actually wrote the uh, the allegorical history of the shrine. Well, he's one of the persons who turned Blavatsky onto hashish. Um, so the people who founded the shrine were um, interested in entheogenic substances, and it's it's fascinating because even to this day, the shrine is the only Masonic organization in Mississippi, at least that is allowed to partake of alcohol while they're having meetings. And they say it's because the order has always been predicated on Masons having fun, but it just shows that, you know, for them, it's integral. The notion of intoxication goes back to its founding times, which looks like it might've been something like a hashish, uh, a hashish club. But, uh, but as far as Masonry itself, no, there's, um, no official use, you know, I'm sure there's use, unofficial use going on all over the, all over the world, but, uh, but nothing that, um, that's official. So nope, you're, you're right. Well, P.D. Newman, this has been a fascinating conversation. You are an encyclopedia of information. I hope that we can have future conversations. I know we're just scratching the surface of, of this vast history. So I want to thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.